You have to be uh, really careful when you're preaching about pride. Um, <laughs> like it's, it's one of those topics that uh, the Lord loves to humble people, and this is a theme in Scripture where He actually, you, you can't even get to God if there's arrogance, if there's this pride. Um, God loves to humble people. Uh, so I was uh, getting ready to preach on pride, and I was thinking about an illustration, something that would illustrate the point. And uh, on Friday night, I went skiing and snowboarding with some people. And Alyssa's not here this morning because her son, Andrew, um, he's getting baptized at another church, and so that's why Jeremy and Alyssa aren't here. But Andrew, um, same name as my Andrew, we were all going. And so there was a bunch of us. Caleb was there, and uh, Andrew was being pretty cocky about his abilities. He j- he's never snowboarded before this year, and so he was just saying he's the best, and he's going to blow past everybody, and he's amazing, and I was like, you know, you be careful, because you might end up in my sermon illustration, and so I was teasing him about that. Um, So anyways, the night went on, and he actually did really well. I think it was like his third time out this year, and he was like pretty much not falling at all, and near the end of the night, I got separated from the group, and so I didn't know where everybody was. Um, I was on one side of the hill, and I decided to go over to the bigger side of the hill again to get my last couple runs in, but I was all alone. And so I went up, and uh, it was like the last, my last run of the night. I was coming down like the steepest hill, and I hit this patch of ice, and I just slid for the long, like I fell, and I was like laying down, and I slid down for the longest time. And so then when I finally got up, and, and I almost hit a lady on the way down, by the way. <laughs> I was like, I knew that there was someone there, and I was sliding towards her, and, uh, and I was like thinking in my head, like, if I hit her, like, I've lost control, so I don't even know where she is. And I, apparently I went past her, because when I got back up on my board and went down, I heard her say, good job! And then I just went down the hill. And uh, so anyways, I got down to the bottom of the hill, and when you fall, everybody knows, because there's this, like, white powder all over you. And so I wiped it all off, and uh, everybody caught up to me. Caleb and Jeremy and the boys were coming up. What happened, they were coming up the lift, and they saw me wipe out, everybody, like the whole group. <laughs> and so they were like, so did you fall? And I was like, yeah, that was me. And they're like, oh, we were laughing so hard. And, and so then I was like, that's exactly how pride, like that backfired on me. I was looking for somebody else to be the illustration, and uh, I was the one that ate it. And so uh, pride comes before a fall, and uh, it was pretty fun uh, to get that sermon <laughs> illustration. I wasn't looking for that one. Um, but that's kind of a little bit of how... Uh, pride works is like there's this confidence and then something happens to make us realize we're not as gifted or accomplished or whatever the case may be as we thought. Um, And on a more serious note, um, pride is actually something the scripture talks about a lot. And there's a theme, if you start reading the Bible in Genesis and go all the way to Revelation and you keep your eyes open for pride and arrogance and humility, you'll notice that there's a theme that God actually humbles proud, arrogant spirits. But there's also this theme, and this is interesting, I'm going to point this out today. God actually uses people, governments, nations that are proud to humble other people's governments, nations. That sometimes the most arrogant seems successful for a while. And it can be quite frustrating if you're really trying to follow Jesus and you're really trying to do the right thing and you see someone or a nation or a government that's really arrogant and it seems like they're really successful. Sometimes it can be frustrating. And what we don't realize, but the scripture is so clear on it, God actually uses sometimes proud people or governments or nations to to humble others. But they don't get away with the pride and the arrogance. God will uh, deal with pride. He, he will deal with, with arrogance. And I want to look at that today in what we're going to talk about. And uh, I'm going to pray that, that we do. Um, again, talking about pride is one of those, I think it's really important because it is a theme that's all the way throughout Scripture. Uh, but it is, it is a really dangerous topic to talk about because if we authentically say to God, Lord, make me like you, make me humble, he will take us seriously. And sometimes the process of becoming more humble is a painful process. And, but I will say it's worth it. It is absolutely worth it. And we're going to look at the, the model of humility, uh, Jesus, as the ultimate example. Um, but we're going to look at, um, in Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar, and this is, this is um, 
just a really kind of crazy story of what God does in this, this guy's life. But let's pray before we do. And I'm just going to pray, and I just encourage you as I pray, um, just to authentically open your heart and ask the Lord, like, if He wants to speak to you, just to let Him do that. Um, I do believe, okay, and I'll say this too, that if we let Him speak to us about this kind of topic, then the process of becoming humble could be less painful. If we close our hearts to God and and our, our hearts are hard in this area, then the process of humbling is a very painful one. And the scriptures say every single person will go through it. You know, regardless of a person, like who a person is, who a nation is, who a government is, the Bible says there's a day coming where every single knee will bow before Jesus. The most arrogant, the most puffed up, the most powerful, the most self-confident, every knee will bow. So it would be better if our knee bows now as opposed to to, to later. And so let's just pray that the Lord will uh, speak to us. God, I just want to thank you for your word. Thank you for how you speak to us. Um, I just pray, Lord, that as we look into your word today, that we would hear your voice. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to become the kind of people that are humble, that are grateful, that are thankful to you. Help us to hear you. Help us to follow you. And I pray, Lord, that um, we would walk in a true humility, not a false humility, not something that's put on, not, not, not a, a weak mind or weak heart, but we would walk in a true humility, which is confidence in you as opposed to confidence in, in self. And so just help us to become that kind of people, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm going to give you a definition of pride, and this will be up on the screen. And you can just be thinking about this as we're looking into the Scripture today. Uh, so, and I may have missed something, but this is just gives you an idea of what what I'm referring to when I talk about pride. So pride is an extreme self-focus. It's a total focus on self that takes credit for all gifts, success, and achievements. Pride blames others, including God, for failure and hardship. Pride is self-pity when things are not going well, and pride is self-congratulatory when things are going well. Pride is self-obsession. So there's more to pride than just arrogance. Or, or the story that I shared at the beginning. There's more to pride than being like, I'm an amazing snowboarder, and then you fall and you realize, oh, that was just kind of stupid. Sometimes pride is, a, is an extreme self-focus um, that turns out to be self-pity, feeling bad for self. You know, there's bad things happening, and it's always someone else. It's always other circumstances. It's always whatever. There's always something else to blame. Or, or it's a, an extreme self-focus in like, you know, I, I don't deserve this or that, or I don't deserve the good things that I have, and there's just this kind of sad shame that's attached to, to these feelings. And so pride is, is more than just arrogance. I'm going to get into that today. But the Scriptures are clear about this, and I want to make sure you hear me on this. God hates pride, but He doesn't hate you, okay? <laughs> I want to make sure that you if, you, if you misunderstand something, don't let it be this, Okay? God hates pride, but he doesn't hate you. And so God's desire is to, is to remove pride from us so that he can interact with and connect with us. If, you, if you're familiar with the seven deadly sins in Proverbs chapter 6, pride is, is one of them. And there is a good kind of pride. So we're going to read uh, some verses from Jeremiah chapter 13 today. And, and God actually talks about how his people, you and I, are his pride, Okay. There's a, there's a good kind of pride. Paul talked about this in, in 1 Corinthians, oh, it might be 2 Corinthians, uh, one of the Corinthians, I didn't write that one down, 7 verse 4, where he says, I think it's 2, he says, I'm acting with great boldness towards you. I have great pride in you. I'm filled with comfort in all our affliction. I'm overwhelming, overflowing with joy. And so there is a good kind of pride, which is a love for others. And so Paul was writing this about a church that he planted, and he had this pride in the people there. He had this, this deep love for his people. So it would be similar if, if I was writing to, to you here at TC from, from afar, and I said, you are my, my pride. Like there's this, this deep love that I have for you, this deep joy that I get when I think about you. There's, there's a good kind of pride. Um, but most times when pride is talked about in the Scripture, it's not a good kind of pride. And so I want to read uh, Jeremiah 13, verses 1 through 11, and, and you can follow along uh, on the screen. 
So I've talked about this before. So we're in this series on uh, Daniel. And Daniel, is an, he's an exile. So Daniel is one of these young men that when Babylon, okay, so Babylon is this nation that came in and destroyed Israel. And Nebuchadnezzar, he's the guy we're going to look at today. He's the leader. So when Babylon comes in and destroys Israel, Daniel is one of these young, brilliant men that's abducted. He's taken to Babylon, and he's forced to serve under this Gentile king who did not believe in God. He actually, and we'll see it today, this Gentile king, Nebuchadnezzar, gives Daniel a new name, and it's kind of tied to his God, this false God that Nebuchadnezzar serves. And so Daniel's new name, Belteshazzar, um, is actually tied to a false god, a false deity. And so this is, this is the king we're, we're talking about. But Jeremiah, he actually prophesies that this evil king is going to come in and destroy Israel, and it's God's doing, which is sometimes hard for us to understand um, why God does some of the things that, that he does. But it's, it's thir- uh, Jeremiah 13, 1 through 11. And Jeremiah is the prophet that was in Israel at the time when, when this all happened. It says, this is what the Lord said to me. Go and buy a linen loincloth and put it on and do not wash it. So I bought the loincloth as the Lord directed me and I put it on. Then the Lord gave me another message. Take the linen loincloth you are wearing and go to the Euphrates River. Hide it there in a hole in the rocks. So I went and hid by the Euphrates as the Lord had instructed me. A long time afterward, the Lord said to me, go back to the Euphrates and get the loincloth I told you to hide there. So I went to the Euphrates and dug it out of the hole where I'd hidden it. But now it was rotting and falling apart, and the loincloth was good for nothing. Then I received this message from the Lord. This is what the Lord says. This shows how I will rot away the pride of Judah and Jerusalem. These wicked people refuse to listen to me. They stubbornly follow their own desires and worship other gods. Therefore, they will become like this loincloth, good for nothing. As a loincloth clings to a man's waist... So I created Judah and Israel to cling to me, says the Lord. They were to be my people, my pride, my glory, and honor to my name, but they would not listen to me. And then Jeremiah goes on, and I won't read the the rest of it, but prophesies to Israel, because of your pride, because of your arrogance, God's actually going to allow Nebuchadnezzar, this really evil, arrogant, prideful king, to come in and totally destroy our people, which is baffling. If, if, you know, I just want you to imagine that you are an Israelite that was alive, you know, 2,500 years ago or so, and, and you've, you know, you've, you've been brought up to believe the, the scriptures. You've been brought up to hear the stories of how God set your people free from slavery and used Moses as a powerful leader and rose up Samuel and David, all these amazing stories. And then all of a sudden, now you're being told the arrogance and pride of, of you know, your, your people, the people of God, has led God to allow this evil, wicked king to come in and just completely destroy your land, your people, all that you've known. It's interesting because Nebuchadnezzar, we're going to see, is this really arrogant, prideful ruler. But God actually speaks to Nebuchadnezzar more than once, like really specifically speaks to Nebuchadnezzar. And he uses Daniel to interpret dreams and those kinds of things. But God actually uh, enables him to do some things on his behalf, which is, which is a tough thing to think about. And, and I think things like this are comforting. I, I'm not going to make any interpretations about what's going on in the world today specifically to do with this, but whenever I see events that affect the whole world or affect our nation, like I, I hear talk on, on both sides of issues like some of the things that are happening in Canada right now, um, some things that are happening across the world, and and sometimes, as Christians, we, we look at some of the things governments are doing and we're like, oh, they're just, they're evil or they're corrupt. And, and I think a lot of times what we see when we say those things, there's a lot of truth to that. There is a lot of corruption in government and powerful institutions. But I also, whenever I read stories like this, I think about, like, how God was using this really corrupt government to shake his people up. You know, and it was a response to their pride or their arrogance. And as I said, I'm not going to draw an interpretation from that. I'm not standing up here this morning and saying the church in Canada is so arrogant that God allowed, you know, COVID to hit the world and all these restrictions and all these things. But I do think differently when I read Scripture because I read Scripture and I go, 
hey, is, is God at work in all of this in some way to just challenge us, to shape us, to, to, to bring us to Him? And, and the question I want to ask you this morning is, are these times causing you to go to God and trust Him more? I will say with 100% confidence that that should be the, like the result, is that we go through these times and we should be going to God and just fully trusting in and relying on Him more and more. You know, and I, and I look at some of the things that are going on in the world and I go, okay, like, God is not asleep. We read this morning in the psalm, like, God hasn't fallen asleep. He's not slumbering. He's at work. And, and just be careful that your interpretation of the things that are happening isn't just influenced by human thinking, whether that's human thinking by people that, that claim to be speaking for God or if it's human thinking that's media-related or whatever it is, like, like, let the Scriptures be what challenge your thinking and cause you to go to God. When I read what Jeremiah says to the, the people here in Israel, I go, okay, Lord, are you, are you doing something significant here and now in our day that you're actually at work in your church in a very significant and powerful way? I also know with 100% confidence that it is God's will that His church would be strengthened and become more like Jesus, that we would be more in line with His will, like, I know that, and, and that's my desire in the midst of everything that's going on, that that's the impact that it would have. So God, what's interesting here is, like, God raises up this prophet Jeremiah who speaks to Israel, speaks to the church, if you will, and he says to them, like, this destruction is coming, and it was God. You might be mad that Nebuchadnezzar is the man in charge, that he's this arrogant ruler, that he's, you know, represents this government that's super powerful, and they're coming and destroying our people. Like, you might be mad, but you have to realize God is in this, and he has a plan for you. And, and the famous verse, we, we talked about it a couple weeks ago um, from Jeremiah, for I know the plans that I have for you, says the Lord, plans to bless you, not to harm you. Like it comes from Jeremiah. What God is speaking to his people is he's saying, difficult times are coming. That verse wasn't as comforting as some of us might think. God, in the middle of the, the context of that verse, Jeremiah is saying, bad things are happening. You're going into exile. It's going to last for 70 years. It's going to be difficult. People are going to die. You're going to lose your way of life. You're going to be, you know, subjected to living under the secular government for a long time. But God's plan for you isn't to harm you. It's to bless you. It's to make you more like Him. And what God was doing in all of this is He's actually making His people more humble. God hates pride. He doesn't hate you, but He hates pride. And, and if, we're, if we're following Him, He removes it from us. And it, it is painful sometimes to be a follower of God because we sing these songs about wanting to be like Jesus and wanting to see His face, and, and, and we sing about following Him wholeheartedly. And if we really mean those prayers, God will do it, but it does mean to remove pride and arrogance. And so, uh, I want to read from Daniel chapter 4, but first I just want to explain a little bit about Nebuchadnezzar. And in the email that I sent out this week, I included a sermon um, by Tim Keller. Um, don't compare his preaching to mine, by the way. He's my absolute favorite preacher, so <laughs> um, that sermon was incredible. If you haven't had a chance to go listen to it, listen to it. He talks on this, this topic, and so some of the information I'm going to share with you about Nebuchadnezzar comes from um, what I learned from Tim Keller years ago, and I, I listened to that sermon again this week, and it's, it's really, really good. Um, but he, he points out, so Nebuchadnezzar... He, he, he is what's called an absolute monarch, okay? So if you type in Nebuchadnezzar in Google, or if you type in, if you go in Google and just type in most powerful people that have ever existed, Nebuchadnezzar is on that list. He's in the top 10. There, there's only like half a dozen people who've ever existed in all of humanity who've had the kind of power that Nebuchadnezzar had. So when you think of powerful people today, like the president of the United States or Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos or whatever, some dictator or whatever, like the, the kind of power they have doesn't even compare to Nebuchadnezzar. So Nebuchadnezzar, the, the guy that comes in and destroys Israel, he's what's called an absolute monarch, which meant he had conquered all of the known world at that time. Like, Nebuchadnezzar wasn't ever worried about this enemy army coming in and invading. There was no. He had defeated all uh, all of the armies, all of the nations, all of the peoples at that time. He's an absolute monarch, absolutely all-powerful by human standards. There wasn't another uh, kingdom that he was afraid of because he had, he had risen to power. And if you look up, and this is the reason I say look up on Google, like this is like 
extra-biblical um, research shows this, but Nebuchadnezzar built what's called the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. Um, it's one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And so Babylon was this city that even by today's standards, if, if you were to, to see it, would just blow your mind, like the beauty of it. He had figured out how to build a city um, that was on the water, that had, like, filled with greenery, um, but the architecture was just incredible and stunning and way beyond its time. And so he was a, a military leader that had no comparison. He was an architectural designer that had no comparison. He was a, just an absolutely brilliant leader. That's Nebuchadnezzar. And so what we're going to see in here, and this is a quote from, from Tim Keller, and if you listen to the sermon, you hear him say this. He says, and this will be up on the, the screen, the human soul wants something that's so big that you can pour all the empires of the world into it, yet be unsatisfied. The human soul wants something that's so big that you can pour all the empires of the world into it and yet be unsatisfied. So if you listen to that sermon I'm, I'm talking about, Keller talks about people that have risen to like the top um, powerful positions. And he says, the people that get there, they know something that the rest of us just don't know. They, they realize that like they have achieved all that there is to achieve according to human standards, but there's still like there's just something missing, something not complete. And the reason I say that they know something we don't is because for a lot of us, there's all kinds of things we would still like to achieve. More money, a better job, whatever, a, a better marriage, living in a new place that you've always wanted to live, whatever it is, there's always something. And we, and we have this idea that like if I could just achieve that, if I get there, I'll have more peace, my life will be more complete. But if you study the lives of like people that hit the top of success consistently, there's this, there's just like something missing. And there's this realization that, like, I, I'm, I'm longing for something that this world cannot possibly give me. And so what you're going to see, we're going to read Daniel chapter 4, is Nebuchadnezzar, um, he, he talks about how he just was at total peace. You know, he's roaming through the halls of his palace and everything's great. But then God starts sending him these disturbing dreams, and he's filled with these anxieties. And anxiety is, is a signal. It's a, it's a signal that there's something not right in our inner world, our inner heart realm, that shalom is not existing in our lives. And, and God actually allows this to happen in Nebuchadnezzar. And so what I want you to notice from this story, and the reason I started off and I set it up this way is because I want you to see Israel, the people of God, okay, had grown proud. So God uses this really powerful, corrupt leader, Nebuchadnezzar, to go in and destroy Israel, to, to humble them because God actually wanted a relationship with them and couldn't have a relationship as long as pride existed. But then Nebuchadnezzar's not left off the hook. He's, he's on the hook, okay, so to speak. And, and we're going to read Daniel chapter 4. I don't usually read this long of a, uh, a text, but there's, just, there's a lot in here, so you could follow along on the screen. Um, but this is, this is the story of, of Nebuchadnezzar. It says, King Nebuchadnezzar, sent this message to the people of every race and nation and language throughout the world. Peace and prosperity to you. I want you all to know about the miraculous signs and wonders the Most High God has performed for me. How great are His signs, how powerful His wonders. His kingdom will last forever, His rule through all generations. You catch this? Nebuchadnezzar is saying some pretty awesome things about God. He's starting to recognize, like, hey, God is good, and but God recognizes there's some pride that exists in Nebuchadnezzar that's under the surface. It's really easy to say awesome things about God and still have lots of pride. That happens. Only God can see what's you know, under the surface. There's lots of people that speak on behalf of God that we think, oh, they're close to God or they're, you know, they've got it right. And God's like, no, there's a lot of pride there. So Nebuchadnezzar is saying um, some pretty incredible things about God. It says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was living in my palace in comfort and prosperity, but one night I had a dream that frightened me. I saw visions that terrified me as I lay in my bed. So I issued an order calling in all the wise men of Babylon so they would tell me what my dream meant. When all the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and fortune tellers came in, I told them the dream, but they could not tell me what it meant. At last, Daniel came in before me, and I told him the dream. He was named Belteshazzar after my God. And the spirit of the holy gods is in him. I'm not going to spend time on this, but a whole sermon could be devoted to this. What's interesting, Daniel gets a name 
he's named after a false god. So we're, we're talking about like living in a secular world. He, he gets this name that's connected to this false god of, of Nebuchadnezzar. But, and what I want to point out from this is like Daniel's identity didn't come from what Nebuchadnezzar said about him. Daniel's identity came from what God says about him. And it's the same for us. Like we're, we're known by all kinds of things in this world or at our workplace or by our family. And, and sometimes what we're known for or what people say about us isn't quite true. But what's most important is what God says about us. Anyways, there's a lot there. I, just, I was really um, taken um, by that as I, was, as I was reading this. Verse 9, I said to him, Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and that no mystery is too great for you to solve. Now tell me what my dream means. While I was laying in my bed, this is what I dreamt. I saw a large tree in the middle of the earth. The tree grew very tall and strong, reaching high into the heavens for all the world to see. It had fresh green leaves, and it was loaded with fruit for all to eat. Wild animals lived in its shade, and birds nested in its branches. All the world was fed from this tree. Then, as I lay there dreaming, I saw a messenger, a holy one, coming down from heaven. The messenger shouted, "'Cut down the tree and lop off its branches. Shake off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Chase the wild animals from its shade and the birds from its branches, but leave the stump and the roots in the ground.' bound with a band of iron and bronze and surrounded by tender grass. Now let them be drenched with the dew of heaven and let him live with the wild animals among the plants of the field for seven periods of time. Let him have the mind of a wild animal instead of a mind of a human. For this has been decreed by the messengers. It is commanded by the holy ones so that everyone may know that the most high rules over the kingdoms of the world. He gives them to anyone who chooses, even to the lowliest of people." Belteshazzar, that was the dream that I, King Nebuchadnezzar, had. Now tell me what it means, for none of the wise men of my kingdom can do so. But you can tell me, because the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Upon hearing this, Daniel, also known as Belteshazzar, was overcome for a time, frightened by the meaning of the dream. And you've got to think about Daniel. So Nebuchadnezzar tells Daniel, so that he's the most powerful man in the world, okay? He's, a, he's an absolute monarch, and he's known, we read about this a couple weeks ago, so if you crossed Nebuchadnezzar, one of his threats was, I'll just rip your arms off, which is a pretty cool threat, right? <laughs> like, if I said that, you'd be like, oh, yeah. But when Nebuchadnezzar said it, he actually meant it. Like, he would rip people's arms off, or he'd throw them into a lion's den. He would just, he was brutal. He'd kill the whole family. And so, Daniel hears this dream from Nebuchadnezzar, and he knows the interpretation that God is going to humiliate Nebuchadnezzar. And so you've got to think about Daniel's position that he's in. Like, obviously, he's a little bit nervous. Like, would you feel comfortable going to a king that's going to tear your arms off and being like, God's going to take your kingdom from you? <laughs> Sucks to be you, <laughs> right? Like, you, he, he probably was feeling afraid. It says that he was overcome for a time. Then the king said to him, Belteshazzar, don't be alarmed by the dream and what it means. Belteshazzar replied, I wish the events foreshadowed in this dream would happen to your enemies, my lord, and not to you. Another thing I noticed in this scripture, we're talking about living in a, a secular world, a world that doesn't acknowledge God. And you look at how Daniel talks to King Nebuchadnezzar. He's like, I wish that the events of this dream, I wish what was going to happen would happen to your enemies, not you. Like Daniel, even though he was a God-fearing man and he, he was abducted from his home and he was forced to serve under this evil, wicked king, he loved him. Like we, we talked a couple weeks ago about like, the get, like, God gives us gifts to serve people for free. Whether they know God or not, if we have a gift that God wants us to use to serve, we serve people for free. Daniel models this so well. Like, he, he actually loves this king. He wasn't like, yes, finally, God's going to just destroy Nebuchadnezzar, and I can't wait to watch it happen. Like, he actually had a love for Nebuchadnezzar. The tree you saw growing, very tall and strong, reaching into the high heavens for all the world to see. It had fresh green leaves and was loaded with fruit for all to eat. Wild animals lived in its shade. The birds nested in its branches. That tree, your majesty, is you. For you have grown strong and great. Your greatness reaches up to heaven and your rule to the ends of the earth. Then you saw a messenger, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, cut down the tree and destroy it. But leave the stump and the roots in the ground, bound with a band of iron and bronze and surrounded by tender grass. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven let him live with the animals of the field for seven periods of time. This is what your dream means, your majesty, and what the Most High has declared will happen to my Lord the King. You will be driven from human society, and you will live in the fields with the wild animals. You will eat grass like a cow, and you will be drenched with the dew of heaven. 
seven periods of time, which could mean seven months or seven years, will pass while you live this way until you learn that the Most High rules over the kingdoms of the world and gives them to anyone He chooses. But the stump and the roots of the tree were left in the ground. This means that you will receive your kingdom back when you have learned that heaven rules. It's powerful. So Daniel interprets his dream. He's like, it's bad, king. Like, you're going to lose your mind. Like, we, we know today. So when we read this, this passage, this, this portion of Scripture, we realize, like, Nebuchadnezzar had an absolute mental breakdown. He lost his mind. He became like an animal. He was totally delusional. He had some kind of mental breakdown. And Daniel prophesies to him, this, the reason this is going to happen is because you, you've grown in arrogance thinking that you are powerful in and of yourself. So then Daniel gives him this advice. And I think that what happened to Nebuchadnezzar could have been avoided if he'd have listened to Daniel. But he doesn't. In verse 27, Daniel says, King Nebuchadnezzar, please accept my advice. Stop sinning and do what's right. Break from your wicked past and be merciful to the poor. Perhaps then you will, be, you will continue to prosper. So when pride, so if there's pride in a nation or pride in an institution or pride in people, there's, there is this opportunity. We see it here. God sends Daniel to the king and says, here's what's going to happen. You will be humbled. God hates pride, but he doesn't hate you. He hates pride, but he doesn't hate you. Daniel loved Nebuchadnezzar, but his message to Nebuchadnezzar was this, this terrible thing is going to happen, but it could be avoided. Repent. Stop being evil. Stop being wicked. Take care of the poor. Take care of the marginalized in the kingdom. Take care of those that are, that are disenfranchised. Take care of those that are, that are being pushed aside. Like, love them. This, this can be avoided. But Nebuchadnezzar's like, no, thanks. Thanks anyway. Um, which is crazy that he didn't listen to Daniel after his history with Daniel from what we read about before. But all these things did happen to King Nebuchadnezzar. So 12 months later, so God gives him a whole year to repent, to actually listen to what Daniel says. 12 months later, he was taking a walk on the flat, roof of the royal palace in Babylon. As he looked out across the city, he said, look at this great city of Babylon. By my own mighty power, I've built this beautiful city as my royal residence to display my majestic splendor. Arrogant, prideful words. While these words were still in his mouth, a voice called down from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, this message is for you. You are no longer ruler of this kingdom. You will be driven from human society you will live in the fields with the wild animals, and you will eat grass like a cow. Seven periods of time will pass while you live this way until you learn, this is repeated, it's very important, that the Most High rules over the kingdoms of the world and gives them to anyone He chooses. That's a pretty profound thought, that God gives the kingdoms of the world to anyone He chooses, which for a time was Nebuchadnezzar, even while he was living in, in arrogance and, and cockiness. But then God will not let pride go undealt with or unpunished. And he says, the kingdoms of the world will be given to who I choose. It's not about you. It's not about your greatness. If you have any greatness or any success, it's because of me, is what God is saying. That same hour, judgment was fulfilled, and Nebuchadnezzar was driven from human society. He ate grass like a cow, and he was drenched with the dew of heaven. He lived this way until his hair was as long as eagle's feathers, and his nails were like bird, bird's claws. After this time, had passed, I, Nebuchadnezzar, looked up to heaven. So this is his words. My sanity returned, and I praised and worshipped the Most High and honored the one who lives forever. I pointed out a few weeks ago, there, there's only two places in the Old Testament where, where the Aramaic language is used, and it's when the people of Israel were in Babylonian captivity. This is a, this like Nebuchadnezzar, in his own language, speaks to God. He says, his rule... Okay, this is an absolute monarch. You gotta, like, it's one thing for me to say this. I don't have power in the, nowhere near what Nebuchadnezzar had. So for me to honor and praise God, it's a good thing. But I also realize how powerless I am when I think about some of the great powers in the world. Nebuchadnezzar is an absolute monarch. There is nobody that made him nervous or afraid. And he says, after this time of hum humbling, he says, his rule, God's rule, is everlasting and his kingdom is eternal. All the people of the earth are nothing compared to him. He does as he pleases among the angels of heaven and among the people of the earth. No one can stop him or say to him, what do you mean by doing these things? When my sanity returned to me, so did my honor and glory and kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out, and I was restored as the head of my kingdom, with even greater honor than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and glorify the God and honor the king of heaven. All his acts 
are just and true, and he is able to humble the proud. Powerful uh, story about God used Nebuchadnezzar to humble his own people, and then God humbled Nebuchadnezzar. And so, uh, from this, and I just want to, this is what I want to get into. Like, the, the kind of pride that Nebuchadnezzar walked in is the kind of pride that probably most of us think about when we think of pride. It's this arrogant cockiness. But pride is sneaky. Okay, and I want, I want us to, this is something that I think can be, if our hearts are open, convicting to all of us. Because I believe every one of us that's in this room today, myself included, have struggled with pride in some way, shape, or form. And it doesn't always look like the kind of pride Nebuchadnezzar walked in. Nebuchadnezzar was an absolute monarch. He had all kinds of power. But there is a pride that is like filled with self-pity or feeling bad for self or a false humility. And it's still pride, and it's something that God still will deal with. God hates pride, but he does not hate you. He wants to remove pride from us so that he can be in relationship with us. And so pride is like a foolish confidence. Humility, on the other hand, is, is the opposite of pride. It recognizes that all good things are a gift. And when I think of pride, um, there is this, like, this, this foolish self-confidence. We were at the zoo this summer. We traveled to Moncton, New Brunswick, to visit family. And uh, we, got, like, we walked all through the zoo. We got to the tiger, um, whatever you call it, like the place that holds the tigers. And they had this great big thick glass window where you could stand and look at the tigers. And usually the tigers are just asleep and lazy, but when we got to the, the glass, they were, like, active. And I don't, know if, I don't know if it was Andrew or Malachi, but one of them was, like, taunting the tiger. And so the tiger was, like, just, like, giving us a show. He was freaking out, and he was, like, pawing, and I was like, this is incredible. I'm watching this tiger, and I felt safe because I, this glass was really thick, and I was like, there's no way the tiger's going to get there. But I just had this thought. I was like, imagine the glass shattered. Like, <laughs> I wasn't wearing a diaper, but I would have wanted to be. <laughs> like in that moment, like if the glass shattered, that little glass, like, and the tiger had come out, I, like the confidence that I felt would have been gone immediately, right? And pride is like that to God. Like God sees sometimes there's this arrogance and there's these ideas that we get in our head, and God knows, like, He's the one that's got the glass in place. He's the one that's got our life happening the way that it is. And and to God, it's it's just such foolishness. It's just such folly that we would be prideful or arrogant because we have such little power. We, we have far less than we actually think. Um, I'm gonna, on the screen, you're going to see this triangle of pride, and this was the best way that I could illustrate. But I think most of us, and, and there's probably some of us that could relate with cocky arrogance, okay? So maybe you relate with my story at the beginning of like, I'm an amazing snowboarder, and then you just fall hard, and you're, you're humbled, okay? Um, but for, for a lot of us, we wrestle with pride in different ways than just being cocky and arrogant. And so, this is my best attempt. This is what happens when I don't send a graphic to Brian or Megan, by the way. <laughs> um, it's really, really simple. But I just wanted to put this up here to illustrate to you um, three different kind of angles of pride. And so, there's a cocky arrogance, which we talked about with Nebuchadnezzar, okay? He was... You saw it in what we read. He, he was confident in himself. He was confident in his own abilities. And God was saying, no, you, you got to where you are because I allowed it. Not because of your own strength, not because of your own abilities. It's because I allowed it. And so there's this cocky arrogance that, that, um, that is pride. But there's also a false humility that's pride. And this might be something that more of us relate to. But a false humility is to say, I don't deserve this, which means... I should have earned it, or I should have been better. It's still based on works and earnings. So maybe you've got good things, or you've been blessed, and there's a false humility that's like, oh, I don't deserve that, and you kind of feel bad for yourself. But what we're saying is, I should have earned it. Like, I, don't, I don't deserve this because I didn't work for it, and so therefore I should have earned it. It's still this, it's still this pride that can't receive. Do you, do you know what I mean when I'm saying that? Like anybody relate with that, where there's this false humility. You have something good, or you're thinking about the things in your life, but you, you can't celebrate it. You can't, you can't fully enjoy it, because you feel like, well, I've, I don't deserve this. I've made too many mistakes. I've done too many things wrong. And that's a sneaky kind of pride, because it is still based on works. It's still us thinking that, well, I should have earned it, or I should have, I should have done something to, to get it or deserve it. 
right? And that's, that's a type of pride that I think a lot of us struggle with. Humility receives things as a gift. Humility recognizes that when, when God does something in your life, he, it's a free gift. You did nothing to earn it. You did nothing to deserve it. True humility sometimes looks like pride because you can just enjoy the good things, recognizing you didn't do anything to earn it or deserve it, but it was a free gift from God. But a false humility, it's still a form of pride, and it's you saying like, no, I, I don't deserve it. And so we, you kind of beat yourself up. But at the root of that, is still pride. And then there's a self-pity that's another form of pride. And so this kind of pride, this is a really dangerous one, but when bad things happen in your life, it's really tempting to blame your circumstances. You blame your spouse. You blame your upbringing. You blame the government. You blame whatever, all kinds of blame. There's this self-pity. And it's still pride because that, that attitude is saying this shouldn't be happening to me. Better things should be happening. If only I had a better spouse. If only I had a better upbringing. If only I made more money. If only my boss treated me better. If only, if only, if only. And it's still rooted in pride. And so this triangle of pride, like the scriptures are so clear. God will deal with pride in our lives. He hates pride, but he does not hate us. And so if these attitudes exist in us, God will deal with them, especially if you're, if you're calling out to him, if you're, trust, if you're putting your trust in him. And an outcome, I didn't put this on the, tr- on the triangle because it's an outcome of pride. Um, this, this week, as I was getting ready to talk about pride, this really hit me hard that one of the main outcomes of pride, one of the main indicators that pride exists in your heart is if you're judgmental. So, judgmental, like to be judgmental and look down on somebody else, it's to, it's to think that, well, if I was in their situation, I would have done better. You know, and I see this a lot with people who've overcome an addiction, for an example. So people may overcome an addiction or overcome a hard time, they overcome it, and then when they're dealing with somebody who just can't seem to kick the habit or can't seem to get over the addiction, there's this temptation to be like, I did it. I mean, I've I, I worked really hard to overcome that. I did everything in my power to, to, to beat it, to best it. And why can't they just be better? Why do they have to play the victim? Why do they have to... Like, pride makes us judgmental. It makes us look down because we think that the things that we've achieved or done are because of our own strength, because of our own abilities. And so if we believe that, if we think that, 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 that we've achieved, you know, our stance in life or our status, like, we'll look down on other people and we'll think, well, you just got to work harder. You just got to be better. And so pride, if, if there's, if there's a, a temptation to be judgmental in you, it's an indicator of pride. And I, I just by the way, I, when I say these things, it's not with a finger pointed and saying, well, you just are so prideful and arrogant. Like, this is a realization. There's a temptation in me to be judgmental towards people that I think should be further along or should be better. And there's this, this temptation to just kind of judge and be like, well, if they just did things better. And what that's saying is like, well, I did my own strength, so why can't they? But humility recognizes that if there's anything you've accomplished, it comes from God. And so the antidote, and this is where I want to land, to pride is humility. We see Nebuchadnezzar got to the place in his life where he was humble. And humility recognizes that everything is a gift. And this is what um, is, is a powerful realization. And, and Tim Keller points it out in the sermon that I, was, I sent as a link and I'm talking about. He points out, like, you, you did not choose what century you were born into, what home you were born into, how much money your parents made, you know, where you live. Like, none of that stuff we had control of, right? And all of those factors play into the decisions we make, how we process life, how we think. And humility is a recognition of, like, if there's anything good in my life, it was a gift from God. Like, I didn't do it in my own strength or my own ability. God shows us in the Scriptures that, like, all, all God had to do for Nebuchadnezzar was flip a switch, and Nebuchadnezzar just lost his mind for a period of seven, it was either months or years, it's unclear in the, in the translation, but for a period of seven months or years, Nebuchadnezzar was just like crawling around on his hands and knees like a, like a wild cow. And it was just God flipped the switch. And, and he, what God was revealing Nebuchadnezzar was anything you have, any ability, any prestige, any honor, any glory, like it's because I've given it to you. And similarly, the antidote to pride in our lives for you and I, the antidote to pride is just this recognition of God, everything I have, is a gift from you. And do and you know that we actually can't encounter Jesus unless we come 
and realize that what He's done for us is a gift. Like, that's at the center, like, that's the central thing of the gospel is that, like, in order for us to actually have a relationship with God, we have to realize Jesus did it all. Like, Jesus lived this perfect life. He died a brutal death because of sin, because of evil, because of wickedness. He accomplished relationship with God, and all I have to do is trust and believe and have faith in Him. Like, we can't get to God in a spirit of pride or arrogance. We get there by this recognition of, like, well, God's done it all, and it's a gift, and I receive it. In the, in the 12 steps, if you're familiar with 12 steps at all, whether you do AA or Celebrate Recovery, all, most of the recovery programs that are used use some form of the 12 steps. And do you know eight of those 12 steps have to do with God? And there's tons of people that go through the 12 steps that aren't even Christians. But eight of those, eight of those steps, um, I almost said eight, my math, um, eight of those steps have to do with recognizing our powerlessness. Like, to beat the addiction, you have to realize, like, I can't do it in my own strength. I am unable to accomplish good for my life. Like, there's this recognition of, like, God. There's this recognition of, and they call it a higher power so that anybody can go. Um, but the guys that actually created AA were, were two Anglicans. They were Christian guys. And they're pointing people to God. They're saying, like, if you want to overcome anything, if you want to take a step forward, you have to realize that there is a higher power. There's a God who is on your side, but, but you, have to, you have to come humbly. You have to re- recognize your own inability and weakness. I want to read um, a few verses from Philippians, and then we're going to close. And I just want to give an opportunity for us to even confess as we, as we close. But Jesus is the perfect example of humility. He, he is the exemplar. There is no better example. In Philippians 2, there's this, this poem about Jesus and the attitude he had when he came here. And it'll be up on the screen. It says, you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. There is an encouraging word for us this Sunday. Um, we've, we've, like, spent a whole sermon on this. But can, like, this is a command. Like, uh, Paul is saying, you, like, you want to be like a, a Christian, a Jesus follower, like, you have to have the same attitude Jesus had. And if you compare your attitude with Christ's, probably most times you go, man, I've got a ways to go. He says, you must have the same attitude that Christ had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. Therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There's no other, there's no better example. And Jesus models, so if you think about that triangle of pride, Jesus had all kinds of reasons to give in to self-pity. Jesus had all kinds of reasons to have a false humility or to be arrogant. And it says here, what we read in Colossians, like he didn't consider equality with God something to cling to. He didn't come here feeling like, well, I want everybody to know that I'm God so they treat me well. And he didn't, he didn't come here thinking, well, I'm not going to suffer because I'm, I'm God. I don't deserve to suffer. Like everything he did, he did with a spirit of humility and the reason it's possible for you and I to walk in humility today is because if you put your faith in Jesus, if you trust Him, the Scriptures say He puts His Spirit inside of us. This isn't something we do in our own strength. It's something God does by His Spirit. And can you imagine, and I just want you to, to think about this, can you imagine if in Thunder Bay, all the people of Thunder Bay had an attitude of humility as opposed to an attitude of self-focus? Like, we, we live in a world that, like, spends a lot of time telling us, focus on yourself, you know, make sure that you're happy. Do what you need to do. Self-focus is an obsession in our world today. But I just want you to think about that on a large scale. Can you imagine a city filled with people that are self-focused versus a city filled with people that humbly recognize God is in control and he's, he's called me to love others and to love God? Like the difference that that makes. That's the kind of society that God wants to build. His church, the reason he punished Israel is because he was saying, you're, you're moving in the direction of pride and arrogance and you're, you're treating people terribly. All the people that are on the margins, all the people that are suffering, you're, you're not even focusing on them because there's such arrogance. And God says, I'm going to send Nebuchadnezzar. He's going to humble you. And it's similar today. Like God's desire for us as a church is that our focus would be on him, which would cause us to love 
and value others. I'm going to get the team to come up, and we're going to close with a song. And, and what I want to encourage you with, as far as a, an application today, maybe when that triangle was up there, uh, you were recognizing in your own life arrogance or self-pity or false humility. If that's the case, I just want to encourage you, even while we're singing these last couple of songs, just to confess that to God. And then as an action step, this year, maybe you haven't joined on this process or maybe you've kind of fallen off from doing it, but my challenge to us at the beginning of 2022 was to intentionally thank God for one thing every day throughout 2022. You journal about it or you just say it. For me, journaling about it keeps me accountable. Sometimes I forget, and so the next day I'm doing two. Um, but the, the goal this year is to thank God for something every day, which, which puts us into a posture of humility and recognizing that all good gifts are from God. I just want to encourage you to, to, to do that. Um, and if you haven't surrendered your life to Christ, if you haven't welcomed Him in, um, today is a day to, to do that. Let's just stand, and uh, I'll pray, and then we'll, we'll close with these two songs. And Lord, I just want to thank you for your word, and uh, Lord, your word is a challenge, and sometimes it's tough to swallow because we see how you deal with pride, but you deal with pride because ultimately you love us deeply. You love us as individuals, but you also love us as a community and as a larger group of people, and, and pride destroys relationships, it destroys community but humility actually fosters community and brings us closer to you. And so I just pray that you would help us to become more like you, to walk in humility and to recognize um, that good gifts are from you and help us to, to be a people who live in surrender to you. And for anybody here, Lord, maybe there's someone here that doesn't know you, haven't, hasn't received you. I pray, Jesus, that they would hear you today inviting them into uh, a relationship with you, which is just something we receive when we surrender to you. We love you, God. We pray for your blessing on us as we, as we worship, and even as we go from this place, I pray that we would go um, in a spirit of humility and that we would shine for you. In Jesus' name, amen.